Imagine what it would be like if Jesus came to church. Yes, I know he's here every Sunday. By his spirit he dwells in each of us and amongst us and that's wonderful. But imagine if he was to walk through the doors five minutes before we started. He'd be about 30 years old, dressed like us, even with a Kiwi accent. Where do you think he'd sit? If we were a Presbyterian, he'd sit at the back. But let's imagine that he sat a little closer to the front. And we might recognise him. Some of us might think, oh, you know, puzzled look, might even want to nudge someone next to us and say, see that person sitting up the front? I think that might be, yeah, nah, can't be. Some of us might not notice anything at all. And when the service started, what would he do? I mean, does he know the words and the tunes to our songs? I'd imagine he would, since we sing them to him each week. And would his voice be like that of an angel or of a tradie who's just come off a work site, but with less colourful language? Because that's what he was, wasn't he? Before he called his first disciples, he was a carpenter. I think he might at least sing in key. Now, if I stood up to preach and I recognised Jesus sitting towards the front, I would faint. You would have to carry me out. Maybe not. But I'd be nervous. I'd be very excited, but I'd be nervous because when Jesus comes to church, you never know what's going to happen. There's never a dull moment. Now, in many respects, we don't have to imagine what it would be like because that's exactly what today's reading is. It's all about Jesus going to church. And if Jesus was sitting in church, I'd do exactly what that synagogue leader did on that day. I'd ask him to preach. So let's dive in to Mark chapter 1 from verse 21 and see what it's like when Jesus comes to church. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now a word about Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was a busy fishing town. It was on the Lake of Galilee. It was large enough to have a custom excise post, as we'll see in chapter 2 when we meet Levi, the tax collector. There was a significant Roman presence. Excavations show a number of Roman-style buildings from the first century. The Gospels also tell us that there was a centurion based in the town, and later in Mark's Gospel, we will see Jesus heal the daughter of that commanding officer. And so if there's a centurion, we know that there was a barracks with at least a hundred soldiers in in that town. There was also a synagogue, and when you think of synagogue, think of a first century church, because this is where God's people would gather every week on the Sabbath. They would sing hymns, they would have the scripture read, and someone would expound or preach on it. A bit like church, a lot like church. They only had the Old Testament and their focus was the living God. We have the Old and the New Testament and our focus is Christ and the living God. But in many respects, when you read synagogue, read church. We know quite a bit about the synagogue. In Capernaum, Luke's Gospel tells us that the centurion helped fund it. And we know what it's like to have a church facility that's been helped out by people outside the church just like the synagogue that Jesus preached in. Uh, There were ruins of a third century synagogue. They have been excavated. And the interesting thing is they've found that that synagogue and the picture there is built on first century foundations. 
And so it's highly likely that that's exactly where Jesus stood up and preached that we're reading about in Mark. A couple of hundred years ago, they, they knocked it over and built a new synagogue, but it's on the same foundations where Jesus preached. Now, in those days, the synagogue leader would often preach, but it was quite common for him to invite someone from the pews to get up and speak. And so on that particular Sabbath, he noticed Jesus and maybe knew Jesus by reputation, or maybe not. But anyway, he was invited to come to the front and to preach. Now in Luke chapter 4, we see his pattern. What did Jesus do? Well, we see Jesus sitting in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, not in Capernaum, but in Nazareth, his hometown. And the synagogue leader invited him to preach. And so Jesus came to the front and he read the day's scripture. So the scroll would have been prepared. And that Sabbath, it was the scroll of Isaiah, and it would have been unrolled to the day's passage. And he read it, and it was... Isaiah 61, the passage we had read earlier about the good news for the poor, about freedom for captives and prisoners set free. And on that particular Sabbath, Jesus looked the congregation in the eye and said, today the scripture is fulfilled. And people were amazed on that day as they are amazed here today. Verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then something most outstanding, most unexpected happened. Verse uh, 23. Just then, immediately, without delay, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now consider for a moment the man. Maybe, just maybe, in all the time he'd been coming to church, he'd never heard a message that disturbed him. Maybe he'd attended regularly, sung the same hymns as everyone else and participated and never found anything to upset him. And I hope that doesn't happen here. I hope that as you sit in the pews now and again you will be offended. Not in the preacher. Not in the way the preacher handles the scriptures. I hope you're not offended by a bad attitude from the preacher. But every now and again, I pray that something Jesus has said about himself or something that Jesus says about you offends you. Anyway, that's what happened on that day. And what we have here is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus spoke with authority. He wielded a sword and it was living and active and it disturbed the man and the evil spirit didn't like it. That's one possibility, that he'd attended church and never been disturbed, but there's another possibility, isn't there? Maybe the man regularly caused a disturbance. Maybe this was an outburst that was almost expected. 
that every week or so he would cause a scene. Maybe the children had a nickname for him, something like Mad Matt, and the children would wait with anticipation until Mad Matt wound up. And they would sit next to each other and they'd be waiting and then an outburst and the boys would nudge each other and grin because church was going to get exciting when Mad Matt wound up. And maybe one or two of the elders would walk down the aisle and try and settle him down and it never quite worked. And the children laughed and giggled and the adults didn't know which way to look. It's a possibility, isn't it? Possibility that every Sabbath he caused a disturbance. But what happened next was different. What happened next had never happened before, whether Matt never was disturbed or was disturbed every week. Something happened that never happened before. I'll read the words in verse 23. And Jesus said, Be quiet. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Goodness me. What's happening here? Well, we can find out what's happening here when we look to the words of the demon. There are two things I want to point out. The demon says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And here he speaks truth. And I want to bring in a a cross-reference to help us understand what's happening here. And the cross-reference is 1 John 3, 8. In this flow of the argument, John is saying to his readers that their behaviour must align with their believing. It's no good just to believe and their lifestyles be whatever they want. Belief and lifestyle must match up. So 1 John 3.8 He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. It's the second part of that verse which is crucial. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that's why the devil, out of fear, cries out, Have you come to destroy us? Because he knew that the Son of Man would come to destroy the works of the devil. So that's the first thing we can understand, the insight that we can get from the demon's words. The second thing we can get out, which is also surprising in that it's true, is these words here. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now ever since the first verse of Mark's Gospel, he has been asking us, challenging us with the question, who is Jesus? And here, in the most direct way so far, we have the answer on the lips of a demon, of an evil spirit. How unusual that we hear this truth, that Jesus is the Holy One of God from a demon. Now, Jesus is not fazed by the demon's hysterics. He won't let it upset him. And so whether this disturbance was one-off or regular entertainment for the children, Jesus cast out the evil spirit. And we notice in Mark 1, 25 and 26 that Jesus doesn't address the man directly. He addresses the evil spirit. And how the children must have been beside themselves with excitement. I mean, has this ever happened before? No, not ever. Here was a story to be repeated and to tell forevermore the day that they came to church and Mad Matt, with a violent scream, was healed. And every Sabbath, when the children came to church, 
there was mad Matt. But he was mad no longer. Now there's a children's story, isn't there? (laughs) Goodness me, every Sunday, every Sabbath, they would come to church and mad Matt was sitting there, sane and calm as you like, with this huge grin on his face. Because he was free. He had been imprisoned by Satan all those years and now he was free. Jesus had come to set the captives free and Mad Matt could worship the living God. And nobody that day would forget what happened. No wonder we read in verse 27, the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus is invited home for lunch after church. How many of us have been invited home to someone's home after church for lunch? It's a good practice, isn't it? It's lovely. And uh, it's very special when you are invited. But that's next week. Next week we'll see what adventure Jesus gets to when he goes home after church for lunch. But what's our take home for today? Where's our uh, encouragement? Where's our application? Well, two things. Two things. First of all, there's encouragement for us and secondly, there's a warning for us. So, what's the encouragement? Well, the encouragement is very simple. It's to go to church, to attend regularly. It was Jesus' practice. Let me look at, let's look at it this way. If you knew Jesus was in town and it was the Sabbath and you wanted to find him and you rocked up to someone who knew Jesus and they say, oh, do you know where Jesus is? That person wouldn't miss a beat, would they? They'll just say, well, Jesus is in church because that's what he does every Sabbath. It was his practice. It was his discipline. It was his custom. And in this and all things, Christ is our example. If we rely on how we feel, either the night before or on the day, our attendance will be erratic or even fall away to nothing. And this has been brought home to me over the last few months. I've either met people, or I've asked about a few names on our church roll that I haven't met yet, and been told, well, they used to be regular, but not anymore. You know, it's very sad, isn't it? Jesus went to church every Sabbath without fail. In a recent survey in the States, people were asked why they didn't go to church. And of those evangelical Bible-believing people that don't go to church, people that used to but don't anymore, and we all know someone like that, don't we? 46% said that they don't go to church anymore because they prefer to practice their faith in other ways. Now, I've heard that before. 33% of those people who used to go to church but don't anymore, 33% said they don't go because they haven't found a church they've liked. I've heard that before. Have you heard that before? It's very sad, isn't it? Yeah. Now, directly opposed to this is uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Now, two things here. First of all, this is a direct command, isn't it? It's a bit like the Ten Commandments. You can't really argue against them because they're so direct and clear. Well, this is another one. Let us not give up meeting together. But do you notice the logic? The logic is, how can we encourage one another if we're isolated? 
all the one another's, love one another, pray for one another, warn one another. How can we do that if we're just practising our faith in our own way or because we haven't found a church that we like? Our non-attendance breaks Christ's heart. We go to church out of obedience and wanting to please him first and what we get out of it second. We reverse that, don't we? We, we go to a church because of what we get out of it first and then the whole Jesus thing becomes second. But it's the other way around. We commit ourselves to a body of believers, a church, out of faithfulness to Christ first and the benefits we get out of it second. We go to church to hear the good news, to be transformed, to encourage one another and most importantly to worship the living God. And we all know people who have fallen away from church and they give the excuses that we've heard today. Can I encourage you not to accept it? To gently, maybe firmly if you know them well enough, challenge them that Jesus went to church every Sabbath, every week and so should we. Not going to church is simply put an act of disobedience and a rejection of the people Jesus died for. Think about it. When someone says, I don't want to go to church for whatever reason, they are rejecting the people that Christ died for. No wonder it breaks Jesus' heart. So that's the first thing, an encouragement for us to be regular, but also when we're talking to those folk who say they used to go to church, an encouragement to follow Jesus' example. A warning. This is our second take home. Did you notice that the words of the evil spirit were some of the best orthodox theology that you will hear. That demon probably had better theology than everyone in this room. And that he knew who God was. He knew that Jesus was there to destroy him and he knew that he was the Holy One of God. So our warning is not everyone who believes rightly is of God. You can believe correctly and be a wicked person. Let's see how James puts this. In James chapter 2, verse 19, again, the logic of his argument is that there are some people, again, just like John, saying, as long as you believe rightly, you can do whatever you like. And James argues about that in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. You see, the demons know who Jesus is. And they know why he came. They know he rose from the dead and they know that their days are numbered. But they hate the truth. They do not submit to the truth. They fight against the truth tooth and nail. Whereas Christians, we believe the truth and it melts our heart. We believe the truth and we submit to the truth. We allow the truth to get right down into our very core and affect all parts of us. And so the warning today is not to be like the demons or the evil spirits who know the truth and do not submit to the truth. We are called to believe correctly but then allow it to impact our lives. See, some people believe in their head that Jesus rose from the dead but it doesn't touch their heart and it doesn't touch their hands, their lifestyle. Some people have an experience with their heart, but they actually don't let it touch their head. They have no idea of what they're on about and their expression 
is erratic. They might be deeply moved by Jesus, but they've never thought through or have no idea what it means, and they're all over the place. What Jesus is calling to us to do as we follow him is to you know, think about it with our head, know that Jesus rose from the dead, but let it impact our heart and let it see expression in our hands and our feet as we work it out. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. So there's our two take-homes today. You know, an encouragement to intend church, no matter how we feel, and to encourage others that have fallen away. And also to remind ourselves that thinking rightly is not enough unless it impacts our heart and our lives. And so, as we draw to a close, and we remember the very first words that Jesus spoke in this gospel. Remember Jesus right back in verse 15 said, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. And today we've seen two kingdoms clash. We've seen the kingdom of God clash with the dominion of darkness. And when Jesus was tempted, he won a victory. And we saw that in the wilderness. And today the two kingdoms go up against each other and the dominion of darkness has been vanquished takes a big hit. In this conflict between the two kingdoms, the winner is no doubt. Remember, we are on the winning side. And as we move through this gospel, we will see those two kingdoms in conflict. We will see them clash. And time and time again, we will see Christ winning. Even on the darkest day, Good Friday, the kingdom of God will win. And we are on the winning side. And so, let's all let the good news impact our lives. Let the good news go deep down and transform our inner core. This is what Jesus would have us do to all those who follow him and who want to follow him until the adventure leads us into glory. Let's pray.